Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Hi, Paul here. As usual, be warned that the series has some strong language. Descriptions of hunting and fatal accidents. The cook, he had gone out shooting and he was pulling deer backwards. Hunting deer on foot was pretty safe, but not efficient. Hunting deer from a helicopter, well, it was the complete opposite. And he walked into the blade and he was deheaded. Looked out the side door and there was deer flopping around there. Boom, 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 down the hill we went. And I thought, we're not going to make this. And he said, come on, jump, jump. And I said, go to hell. I said, you bloody jump. Christ, I said, you're miles off the bloody ground. I don't know, it was just, the height scared you. And you're sitting in a wee bubble there, no door on. I think they drank to relieve their tension, but then they forgot to stop. Policeman come in. He said there's been a terrible accident in the Matuki. Two shooters killed. I'm Paul Roy. This is Deer Wars. Episode 5. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. I heard it coming in a matter of minutes. Remember that? Evan Wabey reminiscing about the first time he saw a chopper. I went home and I thought, geez, that would be amazing to have one of them. And you could get all this bloody meat out in no time. Within a year, he gets his wish, working for Tim Wallace. He starts off using the chopper as a pack horse, but quickly becomes a shooter on the machine itself. Well, I started at the ridge and I went through till the 72. Well, every day was something new. The possibilities become obvious, and not just in your own backyard. We were in the west branch of the Matuki, and we were flying around. We hadn't gone over the tops at all. And uh, Tim just said one day, he said, what's behind there? I said, I don't know what's behind there, but I said, you're looking at the coast, Tim. Oh, I said, we might go and have a look. So we flew in and flew through it. We arrived, and this face was just moving with deer. It was just shingled from the top to the bottom. There wasn't one tussock of it. He'd have chased the mouse from the top to the bottom and unless he could find a rock to hide under, he could follow him all the way. And the obvious thing was the colours weren't actually keeping up with the increase. Mick Sargeson from near Queenstown is a veteran meat shooter when he's first introduced to helicopters. I was standing outside the hut the noise was getting louder and louder and louder and I'm looking everywhere and I couldn't see this blooming helicopter and it was just about on top of me before I saw it. Well, it was a bell, you know, it had only a bubble and it looked like a bridge girder with a tail rotor on the back of it. And that's the first time I'd ever seen a helicopter, right up close. 
Pretty soon, Tim Wallace gets Mick in the air to have a crack at shooting from a chopper. He doesn't like it and never really gets used to it. I was just breaking daylight. Wake up to the bang, when the hellop cranked up. Well, here we go again, sort of thing. Getting into the machine, then you started to shake and rattle a bit. Once you get into it, like a game of rugby, you're nervous as hell until you get out in the paddock and then it's gone, isn't it? The pilots and the shooters are all tough, self-reliant guys, but they all talk about their nerves when flying. One of those tough nuts is Pete Campbell, who sometimes shoots and gut steer in his bare feet. He stays in the game for many years, but it costs him. The biggest problem I had would be sitting in one of those damn machines ferrying from Wanaka to over the coast, to the Haast. And I'd probably go through about two packets of cigarettes. I don't know, it was just the height scared you. And you're sitting in a wee bubble there, no door on. And uh, yeah, too much time to reflect on what could happen. And this was the safest time in the whole lot. But when you were actually getting out on the side of the hill and that and collecting there and that, your mind was too much focused on what you're doing than worrying about how much danger you're in. There's too many moving parts on those damn things, isn't there? <laughs> oh, shit. More than 40 years later, you can still hear the nervousness in Pete's voice, and with good reason. So, just to make it clear, in the early days, the shooters perch on the edge of their seat. They're half in and half out, with both hands on their rifle and nothing to hold on to. No seat belts either. Well, there are, but they don't use them too often. But at least the crews don't have to worry about finding deer. Mick Sargeson. When the helicopters started, there was nothing to see a mob of 60 or even a mob of 100 out across the snow or somewhere. There was no trouble to shoot 100 deer a day, and that's all we could handle. And the trouble was to get them out that night. There were deer everywhere. What about the actual business of shooting from a helicopter? How did you find that? Honestly, I've got to say that I'm not a very good shot from a helicopter. I found it difficult. I know quite a few blokes, like Gavin, he seemed just up and bump and it was down. Uh, another joker, Johnny McIntyre, he was good. He could drop them on the run in the head and neck. I had to get up and aim at it, you know. And everyone said, no, that's not the way you do it. Just up and bang. And I couldn't, couldn't do that at all. Choppers aren't cheap to fly. Time is money. And the pressure is on the shooters to perform. But it was very, very embarrassing. And you kept missing. No pilots like that too much. <laughs> and you weren't a very popular bloke. If you missed too many times, you're just about chucked out. <laughs> Mick, what do you reckon your shooting ratio was? How many bullets per deer? Oh, well, I was quite happy of two shots to a deer. But a lot of jokers would say that's just too many. But that was my level. But when I got three shots to a deer, well, you just about got the bullet yourself. <laughs> In Mick's part of the world, around Queenstown, they're shooting mostly on the open tops, which may favour the hunters. Slightly. Aerial hunters in the North Island, the Ruahini, Kaimanawa or Uruwira, are doing it a lot tougher, having to snap shoot deer in the bush or on the slips. 
and like every other shooter of the time, there are the usual scares and frights. And the reality of the job hits Mick hard shortly after his first flight. We went up and had a few drinks and policeman come in and he comes straight over to me and he said, uh, you're Mick Sargison. I said, yes. He said, would you mind staying the night? He said, there's been a terrible accident in the Matuki. And I said, what's the terrible accident? He said, well, there's been two shooters killed. And it was Frank Ursick and Johnny Cummings. Were you sent in the next day? We walked in, we, and you could see the helicopter about halfway up. We wanted to get up the hill and get the job done and get out of it. But the police kept saying, yes, hang on, hang on, and we were stopping and waiting for them. And I thought the police were pretty fit, but obviously they're not. <laughs> Uh, they had to go up first and tidy the mess up. And then we were called up and just went up and we grabbed the, the stretcher and away we went. We didn't back around. That was one hell of a shock to us all. That was hard, bringing those boys off the hill. Despite this, Mick keeps working. And he keeps having scares, as they all do. Do you remember that first shoot on a chopper, what it was like? Yeah, we were told just to keep clear of the tail rotor and know where the main rotors are. You sort of floated into the helicopter, you didn't jump on the skirt, because pilots didn't like that at all. And you had to do it pretty quick, because the moment the pilot felt your foot on the skirt, he was lifting and he's, he's on the way, because it was all go, you know. Uh, one pound a minute in those days, to operate a hiller and uh, Tim, he just didn't bugger around. <laughs> Tim is, of course, Tim Wallace, who flies fearlessly and probably scares the hell out of a shooter at times. At this stage, Tim is flying a Heller helicopter with a recommended payload of only a 1,000 pounds to be carried on a long strop below. You get pretty accurate. You look at a deal and say, that's 100 pounds. You know, that's about 140. I reckon I had a good thousand pound on this one, and Tim <laughs> shook his head and he nodded me and put a skid on the ground. And he said, No, no, put that other one on. He said, put that other sling on. I said, That'll make it up to about 3,500 pounds, Tim. There you see me, blood. And I thought, Oh, no. Uh oh, you can see where this is going. I hooked it on, and then he nodded me in, and I thought, Oh, no, me on top of that lot. Yeah, 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 come on, come on, come on. So he left and dragged them down the hill, and I thought, we're not going to make this. Boom, 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 down the hill we went. I looked out the side door, and there was deer flopping around there. Well, he got airborne, and we dropped into a real gorge, and we're going down, 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 and he just come around the corner. There was the truck, and he just made it and triggered it off. Well, I reckon we went in there. Yeah. <laughs> A good hundred feet, and he was sitting there. We made it, we made it. <laughs> and he comes round and lands. He said, I want to know exactly what we had on the hook, just weigh them separately. And it was, I think it was 15 or a little bit better. He done well there, <laughs> but I didn't like it. 
The 15 that Mick mentions is, of course, 1,500 pounds, or nearly 700 kilos, 50% more than the manufacturer's recommended load for that chopper. This was pretty common practice. Tim probably just shrugged and carried on. In fact, Makarora pilot Harvey Hutton is one of the best. As we heard, he came to it a bit later at the end of the 1970s, and he's still flying hunters and tourists, like me, around today. He's also been helping me out for this series, taking me around some of the colours' old haunts. Of course, like all pilots, Harvey had his own share of dramas in the early years. Then while we were in the Hughes 300, which is, and most of them are A's and B models, which are before the C model. The C model are a powerful version. They were a nice wee helicopter to fly, but they um, had a habit of sometimes just stopping. <laughs> Did that ever happen when you were in one? Yeah. And what happened? Oh, they had to auto down. Usually it ended up in a disaster, but they were a good helicopter as, as far as having a crash because it had a big mast up behind it, which used to always um, protect you, sort of above your head height. Protect you from getting, you know, where a Robinson hasn't got that. Did you have more than one time when it stopped? Yeah. So yeah. what was that the first time? Just take us through uh, what happened. The first time, I, I had about four and a half thousand hours up before I had any dilemmas, which was, um, and I got an engine overhaul in Dunedin, and I got back to to Haast, and I was um, just flying, flying around the tops, and boop, stopped. And there's nowhere to go, so we ended up going to, into a waterfall and just held it, held the nose up so it protected us and it come down backwards into the trees and um, it hurt, compressed my vertebrae in it. We actually sort of stuck on a tree and then the branch of the tree broke and then it sort of come down and smacked under a rock in the waterfall. How far down did you drop? Was the drop? Well, probably 30 feet, oh. but it was pretty full on. Yeah. Who was your shoot? Did you have a shoot? Uh, yeah, Phil Sawcott was my shooter. Oh, right. And Phil, um, yeah, Phil, I think he jumped from halfway when it was falling. Because <laughs> he was right beside my door, which I might got out. He's done that a couple of times, Phil. He jumped in that up north too. He jumped out and the guy's thing blew up. Yeah, 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 yeah. He knows when to jump. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and in this industry, there's always going to be another fright just around the corner. And another time, and the McFarlane, I went in to catch a deer and then just lifted down and got above the trees and it, and it stopped and we just like flying around here and just getting up to the top of the trees there and it just crashed straight into the trees. That was quite a bad one. I went down, a, Phil, Phil Wright was with me on that one and it pushed all the, it went down this big tree and you know how sometimes you get a tree that grows the root out, it skidded down the tree and it pushed all the console on the floor right back up onto the between us and I actually said to him I said Phil you're right nothing I thought oh, shit he's not going to be too good because I couldn't even see him between me and him and I just asked him two or three and I said yeah I'm all, I'm all right I'm just counting my fingers and toes <laughs> <laughs> but when we went back the next morning to get it because you know we're 
legs were pushed right up and we got out underneath. We're okay. You know, we're nothing broken, right? We tried to get back in on it the next day, you couldn't get back in it. So it was pretty flattened. I've talked to a lot of people who've had crashes and stuff. Like, what happens the next day when you reassess and everything? Do you lose your confidence in the Lord? It'll make you a bit jittery or do you just... Um, yeah, a wee bit. Just for a week or so. Just so you get used to the next helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> Harvey may have got away with it, but others were not so lucky. And some escaped serious injury by the skin of their teeth. Well, I shot my first deer when I was 11. Even then I couldn't carry it. There was a big stag and, of course, you know, 200 pound and 11-year-old. Well, there was just no way he was ever going to get it off the ground. Mark Cust grew up on the West Coast. His father, a coal miner. And Mark was heading down the mines too, but hunting got in the way. As I got a little bit older and a little bit stronger, I could um, gut deer, do them up into a pack, get them onto a log inside them and I'd battle and struggle but I'd get them out eventually yeah so and I didn't mind getting covered in blood it was to me it was the greatest feeling. <laughs> I spoke to Mark several times in Greymouth where he was born and bred. Like some of the other colours you've heard from he hadn't talked much about it but I think it helped that over 50 years I've tramped through many of the same valleys where these guys worked. I've crossed flooded rivers, I've slept under wet rock pivies, run short of food, and had my share of tough transalpine trips. In short, I was not a city slicker come to pinch their stories. Maybe this is why many of these often reclusive men were willing to talk so openly, often for the first time. Mark, like others, seemed genuinely puzzled that I would want to talk with him, and that he had a story worth telling. Ah, that you be the judge. A shooting job came up down at Haast, and of course, that's where I headed, and that's where I started. Um, and so, Mark, when you went down to Haast, did you, did you go straight in as a shooter, did you? I did. Had you been on the helicopter before then? Never. So despite his youth and total inexperience, Mark was flying in helicopters at high speed, shooting deer in the dangerous Southern Alps. Now, I don't know what you were doing in your teens, but I was at school in Hamilton, with a crush on young actress Hayley Mills. Flying in choppers was definitely not on my radar. The next few years for Mark had plenty of dramas and multiple crashes. He takes us back to one day in South Westland, flying with Johnny McIntosh and Bob Norton when the engine of that chopper suddenly cuts out. We got onto some deer on the flats and done a, a turn up over the, over the trees. Of course, we were probably getting along at 110 knots, and everything all of a sudden goes silent. The pilot that day, known to all as Johnny Mac, is also new to the job. We were about 3,000 foot up on the side of the hill when all of a sudden she quit, and I never said anything to him. But he never said anything to me. So what I did, I just aimed into the, into the biggest tree. At the end of the day, all you're doing is you're looking through the bubble and you're watching the trees appear and, uh, well, sail into the treetops. Learning from your experience is all important. Remember at this stage, there are no books, 
or manuals, or even anyone else to ask. This is brand new territory for both pilots and shooters, and each is totally reliant on the other for survival. The big thing was to teach the pilot how to position you to shoot. I mean, pilot can't position you, you can't shoot. And I had a thing, I said to them like, I'm in charge, I'm the boss. And if I say you don't do it, you don't do it. There's no argument, but I'm not infallible. If you see me do things you don't like or don't like, you tell me. And I had another rule that every pilot I flew with, I always said, and we went into some funny places, but my job was I looked after the tail road. Wherever we went, I was watching that. And if I didn't like it, don't think I'm wrong, get the hell out of it. And were there occasions when you had to do that? Oh, yeah, yeah. We shot these deer and it was going to be pretty difficult to get them. A, put me off and B, pick me up. And they also picked the deer up. And I just said, no, flag him. Well, no, no, he said, I can get him. I said, no, no, flag him. That was when the argument started saying And then when we stopped, he said, you're ascertaining my ability. And I said, you got it in one. I said, that's my job. I said, you know, is to keep me alive, try and keep you alive and keep the helicopter whole. But teaching goes both ways, with pilots schooling shooters. Because when we flew in, and it was a bit, I, I could take you to the place, it's so vivid in my memory, and it was a big, big face with a big, big peak behind it. And it all these deer on it. And we flew in and dropped Max off. And then he jumped, got out. And then he tried to run up the hill through the rotors. I remember Sam rearing off the hill and going, God, he was going ballistic. And I said, oh, you know, what's wrong? And he said, oh, that guy just tried to run up through the bloody rotors. Didn't mean much to me. I thought, oh, you know, better make point of telling people when you get out of the chopper, don't move till the chopper's away, you know. Running up through the blades of a helicopter is about as basic a mistake as you can make. But there's worse to come the same day. Mac jumped out and cut a throat, and then he had his rifle sitting out, just handed to me, and I'm just sitting there and I must have touched the trigger because the next bloody thing going boom in front of a face luckily I wasn't leaned over it and went out through the top of the bubble wow shit no Sam he threw a wobbly and so we run it down and stopped and had a look no we missed the blade how I don't know there was no hole in the blade so we could still fly the chopper but after that, the rule came in that we had to take the bolts out of our rifle before we got in the chopper. There's no end to the way things can go wrong. Evan certainly has his fair share. I thought I was shooting the deer, but I had the skid one time, and I had the mirror the next time, and because he was whipping around, God, <laughs> it's about threw me out once. <laughs> but that was it, you know, it was his style of flying. Basically, bad things happen almost every day. One night, we're in the White Today. We went in there and there were some deer on a bluff in front of us. I think when we went and tried to get them, the snow and we couldn't see, was decided that I would get out. And so I used to drop this bag out, so I dropped it. And, oh, God, it went a very long way. <laughs> or it hit the snow. And he said, come on, jump, jump. And I said, go to hell. I said, you bloody jump. He said, why? I said, Christ, I said, you're miles off the bloody ground. And I said, he said, no, I'm not. He said, I'm bloody. I said, well, you back back and have a look at my bag. 
handle it. Oh, shit. <laughs> so, so, yeah, we were a long way up. You get the picture. Close shaves or frights, as they call them, don't always end so well. By 1969, it's estimated that 40 helicopters have crashed, some with fatalities and bad injuries. But nothing's going to stop the growth of this exciting industry. Evan Wabey learns quickly and is often paired up with new pilots. And so I was smoking in those days. I was smoking 50 cigarettes a day. The biggest stress I had was when I was on with the trainee pilots because you had to let them go and in some instances you had no control at all. They had to get out of the situation. Whereas in the teal, it was a southerly. I shot this deer on this ridge and then there was a big, big bluff and that this deer had got round into the waterfall and I was actually looking to see if I could get in and get her. And then all of a sudden, shit, we just fell out of the sky. And I mean, we fell. And I honestly thought, my number's up. Fell easily 2,000 feet and oh, it would be only three or 400 feet off the ground before we started flying. And we were in a downdraft Dead of the chopper flying was actually creating its own downdraft, so we were just going down. And it was only when we got out of the downdraft that we actually started flying, so otherwise we were in the deck, so just like that. And Evan, what goes through your mind when something like that happens? The biggest thing we were taught, say nothing. That was what we were told, because the only guy who's going to get you down is the pilot, so it's no use you saying anything at all, you know, because you're just in his hands. And Roy McIver apparently said one day that I had no nerve, but I, I had a nerve, don't worry. <laughs> you couldn't dwell on it. I think if you started sitting down and thinking about all the things that might happen, you'd have to give it away, because, you know, cause as you say, it was quite stressful at times. And it all came to rest. I was still in there. There was no front of the helicopter. We're back with 16-year-old Mark Cust and his pilot, Johnny Mack crashed in a tree somewhere in South Westland. Basically, there was a flattened console and nothing else. Johnny had a big limb of the tree that came right up through the front of the helicopter and right up against his chest. Had him pinned to the helicopter, and the helicopter was actually on its side. Our best friend Bob had gone out through the back door and to the ground. The only thing that was holding it up there, one blade was hooked over a branch that was only about as big as your arm. Well, I just turned around and said, where's Bob? And Mark said, he's gone. The only thing that worried me when all of a sudden, and it was just breaking daylight, and Mark, he's still strapped in, yells out, Quick, you better get out, it's on fire. There must have been a puff of smoke coming out the back, but I, I mean, I couldn't move. I could slide up about a foot, and I'd slide down a foot. And Mark had to get out of the machine. He said, I can't get down the tree. And I said, you, if you don't go, we're gonna die in here anyhow. I said, you've got to go. Of course, what's driving all this and why the men take so many risks is money. They're just making so much of it. Gavin Overton, remember him? 
He survived Tim Wallace's first crash. At one point, he has a monthly paycheck of £900. That's about 15 times the national average. I met his wife Grace, a diminutive, lively woman, at her home in Dunedin on a typically grey day. We talked about work and money. Well, we couldn't handle it. Couldn't handle it. Yeah, money was good. But it just slipped through our fingers like nothing else. All rushed and bought new cars. Oh, yes, we all have the new cars. Then new lounge suites. You know, Gavin said, what do you want? And I said, oh, I'd love a half a dozen of those lovely fine bone china teacups and saucers and plates. You know, a silly thing. But they just, I just loved them. <laughs> and so that was my gift. But I never questioned the money. You didn't in my era. He paid the bills and that was it. Never, never had any money to myself. Family benefit, you know, that was it. Another thing the women don't question is the drinking. It was a very lonely life for the women. They were away, you know, sometimes weeks on end. And when they did get out, they just loved to go to the pub. We'd say, please ring us if you're going to the pub, just to let us know you're out or something, you know. I only think the more money helped them drink more, honestly. Because, by God, they drank, all of them, the truck drivers and all. We often had young guys staying at our place. And they would get up in the morning and look, oh, I don't know how they drove vehicles. They wouldn't be allowed to nowadays. Do you think that the heavy drinking might have been a result of the dangerous work they were doing? Yep, I do. I really do. I think they drank to relieve their tensions, but then they forgot to stop and would keep going and... I don't know how they got up in the morning, but they did, four o'clock. Tim would say four o'clock, and by God, they'd be up. But just got sick of it. You enjoyed your drink yourself, but you got to the stage where you're just getting sick of people every Saturday night coming to our place or Friday night. And then they'd come over from one of the young ones and come to our place. And I always felt I had to put supper on, like mousetraps or savouries or something. Oh, Gavin would say I'd have asked them to come over for a beer because... You know, the pub, I think it shut at 10 o'clock, did it? Yeah. And, um, oh, yeah, I had to go round to Gav's because he need to have the big chamois head on the wall and the big tar head with a cigarette and his green hat sitting on top, stuck out the tar's mouth, you know. Our luggage, like how we are parties, were just booze-ups. And everybody enjoyed everybody else's company and they were all trying to do each other out of the shooting. Somebody would get a lot more than them and... Um, Oh, Charlie Emerson would say he was a better shot than Gavin, and oh, everybody would step in their gutters and their shooters, and they'd all take sides, and oh, you know. Oh, I'd end up going to bed. You need all your wits to shoot and fly in these valleys. So imagine, after a big night on the booze, drinking to manage your fear of accidents and injury, then you have to get up before dawn to fly and shoot all day until dark. But that's how it is. Grace's husband, Gavin, is known as a tough man who likes a drink, which he's the first to admit. But one of his stories really sums it up. About three in the morning, we were having a mad party at home. And they used to go and shoot, and I said, no, not. I should shoot a week off. He said, there's only two hours left on the helicopter. And I said, well, I'm three parts out of four gone. So I said, flag it away. Nope, he said, I'll be there. So he flies over, he lands on the road outside. I'm going to be staggering out. Forget about it, Tim. 
Remember the wonderful diamond era of him, people? No, get in. So I got an helicopter and he's flying up the lake. About 10 minutes away up the lake. Where's your gun? Let us back home, innit? Yeah, useless bastard. So he turned around and went away back home. Because that's funny, 20 minutes. It's getting daylight fast. So I grabbed my gun and uh, some ammo and knives. I had a pair of my woolly slippers on. Never thought about changing them. Of course, the first 17 deer put about one round each in the neck. Going well. I'm just sitting there half past. Then the finish from getting dry. I said, Jesus, I put up beside that creek there. So he pulls up beside the creek. I jump us out. Gets a gut full of water, climbs back in around the corner. There's a big stag. And I think I've fired about nine, ten rounds and hit it up the arse in the finish. <laughs> Tim was screaming. He says, from now on, he saw your bottle of bloody whiskey in the boot. He says, you shoot better when you're pissed than you're sober. <laughs> and he was right. Eventually, Gavin leaves the industry and buys a pub. You can draw your own conclusions. But when I talked to him in 2008 at Port Chalmers outside Dunedin, he's not in good health. Now in a wheelchair, it's obvious that Gavin has lived his life only too well. But he still has a twinkle in his eye and a smoke close to hand. And I'm glad I've had the chance to meet him. Of course, as we heard from Grace, Gavin's ex-wife, while the men are away having their fun and games, it's the women who end up waiting at home. Evan Waby is at least aware of his wife Anne's concerns. Well, at least up to a point. My big thing was, I ne- you never thought about it at the time, and I often would like someone to talk to all the wives because, hey, all they knew is we flew away in the morning or uh, over a period of time, and... I wonder, did they wait and wonder were they going to get that phone call? The wives must have lived quite an uncomfortable life. Couldn't have been much fun for them. But I could be wrong. Evan is not wrong. It's worth remembering the women supporting the men. They are usually forgotten and have rarely spoken. The wives, the ex-wives, the girlfriends, and unfortunately, the widows. They were there too. They lived through those times as well and they have their own tales. Back in 2008, I travelled to Tamuka to talk to Charlie and Nola Jelly, who met as childhood sweethearts. Charles, when I was still going to school, sometime later that he moved into the venison industry. We weren't married when he started out on the helicopters. I was 18 and Charles was 20, but, I mean, he started out in the industry when he was 17, 18, so, you know, weekends he was working. You're always worried and you always feared the worst. And I can recall one um, time we were living in Lagoon Valley, which is at Lake Hauwea, and Tim arrived down. That's Tim Wallace, of course. And I was quite convinced he was the bearer of bad news. And he knocked on the door. And I said, well, I'm not letting you in because you've only come to tell me that Charles has been killed. He said, I haven't. He said, Chairs is fine. He always called him Chairs. 
And I said, no, he's dead, he's dead, I know he's dead. He said, he's not dead, I've come to give you a message from him. And he said to me, if anything happened to Charles, the police would come and tell you. So then I reluctantly opened the door. I couldn't get him out, so in the end I had to leave him. Back in South Westland, it's up to shooter Mark Cust to make some life and death decisions. I started my way back down the tree, got so far down I couldn't go any further and of course the tree was so big I couldn't get my arms and legs around it to slide the last 30 odd feet to the ground. I sort of was in a rock and a hard place there for a wee bit but I managed to get out on, a, on another limb and get my way right out to the end and I got on there like a possum and I started bouncing up and down and got the right momentum. When there was a tree about, oh, I guess it would have been about eight feet away, and, and I was like a possum. And I leapt from there and into the treetops and grabbed and latched onto this other tree, which allowed me to get down to the ground. And of course, I had to check on Bob, who was beyond help. But, you know, you still had that horrible feeling that, you know, you'd lost a good mate, so, you know, I guess there was some feelings there, but I was more concentrating on Johnny up 80 feet up in a tree, you know. Evan's wife, Anne Wabey, an engaging Scot, is in the industry from early on. Almost by accident, really thought I was only going to be in New Zealand for a short time. Well, I worked at the Hotel in Monica, and friends of mine in Monica gave me this job that they said was working for an elderly people down at Luggett. And I said, is there any cooking? Because I can't cook. And they said, no, 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 there's no cooking. So I said, oh, well, I could probably handle that. So we went down to this new job. And um, when I got there, there was lots of people there drinking. And, uh, and I thought, gosh, this elderly couple must be very popular, you know, with all these young ones and that. And Tim said to me, what do you really think you're here to do, Anne? Yes, Tim Wallace again. And I said, oh, I'm here to look after an elderly couple. And he laughed and ha ha, he said, no, you're here to cook for me and about 20 guys, maybe more some days. And I said, oh, <laughs> the last laugh's on you, Tim. I said, because I can't cook. And Tim said, oh. I've never heard of anybody that can't cook. And I said, well, you have now, me. <laughs> then he panicked because he really had to have a cook. So he begged me all sorts of ways just to do it, just till he could get someone else. Tim said he'd get me a cookbook and a potato peeler and he would show me how to do things. And I said, right, I didn't mind trying it, but the first complaint, I was out that door. So age 21, Anne becomes the cook for the shooters, pilots and truck drivers at a camp south of Queenstown. We'll catch up with her again soon and see if her cooking's improved. Just couldn't wait to get up in the morning. I just simply couldn't wait to get into it. This is just so neat. How am I getting paid for it? And getting paid well. I just hope that I'll live forever doing this. Jeff Carter has experienced everything the industry could throw at him over 35-plus years. He's been a ground shooter, a gutter, and shooter on choppers, as well as live deer capture. 
He's had a formidable career since, shooting thousands of goats in the Galapagos in an eradication program and catching elk and caribou in Alaska. When I last spoke to him in 2022 in Te Anau, aged 72, he was still shooting deer from a chopper. But once upon a time, he too had to learn from scratch. I've been ground cheating all my life and I shot a lot of deer, but ground cheating on foot to go aerial shooting is a completely different ball game. It's so different. You do not aim for a start as a, it's more or less snap shooting. And I find once I learned how to snap shoot, I was a lot better. Can you remember your actual first ground shooting off a chopper? Very first deer I shot, it was flying along a slip and I fired one shot and hit it fair up the ass. And I said to him, oh, this is easy, isn't it? And he said, well, hit this next one then. And I think I emptied the whole magazine at it. I didn't think he would hit the slip. I remember Grant late me on the screen and say, you are not a natural. You are not a natural. I said, who the fucking hell are you calling no natural? And <laughs> you know, you're just no natural either. Like, you know, once you put a crash helmet on a pilot, that just completely changes their complex. He goes from Charlie Chaplin to bloody Hitler. But uh, we got better and better as talking and on. I'm still, I'm still in the job. But in those early days, it wasn't fun. It was certainly not a glamorous job. Uh, down at Waikai, we were in down there in winter, and it, it must be the second coldest place next to the Antarctica. I used to climb into a hot bath back of the old farmhouse we worked out of. We used to soak in that for half an hour. I used to come out feeling cold. My typical day would start at half past four, the light would go on, and um, we'd get up and there'd be Kits Rogers there was cooking breakfast, and he'd have a huge breakfast there, chops, sausages, eggs, potatoes, everything. And then you get in that helicopter and it was dark, and you take off in the dark. If you're lucky, you'd have a flask of saveloys or something, and uh, you'd go all day into field on the southern end of field, and we'd shoot 30 to 40 deer for the day, you might get 50, and we would then come home in the dark, would shoot right to the last minute, you'd be picking the deer up in the dark and you'd be cold as hell because those helicopters never had any heaters. And uh, you'd come home and you'd just go straight in the bed, you'd be getting to bed about half past 11. And sometimes, and I was that exhausted, I used to go to bed covered in blood and I used to wake up. Yeah, you're just that tired, all you want to do is sleep. To hell with eating, to hell with eating, I just want to sleep. And that was your day, the next day, about four in the morning, the light would go on, they'd do it all again. People thought it was a glamorous job, but I got news for them. The early crews have a pilot, a shooter and a full-time gutter to handle up to 150-plus deer a day. But by the time Jeff starts, he's having to shoot and gut his own deer and is always under pressure. Shot and gutted all your own deer, but it's like everything you got. The first day you cut your fingers just about right off and after a while you learned how to avoid your fingers and you learned how to gut a deer. Because when you're ground hunting, you had all the time in the world to gut them. But um, I can well remember coming into slips with six deer on the hook, all the guts is in. The gym at the controls, and he said, we'll run out of fuel, he says, button the deer off and you jump out. And he'd just do a complete circle and he'd come in and you'd have to have those six deer paunched. Paunching an animal means taking the guts out. And if I didn't have those six deer paunched, you know he was getting pissed off. Anne Wabey, the 21-year-old Scot with no cooking experience, is getting stuck into her job as camp cook, feeding one of Tim Wallace's teams. That was hard work. Well, I had to get up at three in the morning because I had to have breakfast cooked for them before they left about four. So it was cold and, yeah, it was a real experience and I'd never cooked on an open fire. I'd never cooked anyway. 
Then I had to learn to cook on an open fire and, you know, mark out how much I had to cook. And then we got upgraded to the shearers' quarters and it was a coal range, which I'd never seen in my life before and didn't know how I'd done this. If the term chief cook and bottle washer applies to anyone, it certainly does to Anne. Probably the only female there most of the time. Mm, yeah, yes, what it was. was it like being cooking a camp for a whole lot of men? It was quite hard. It was very hard. And when they came at night and after a whole day out on the hill and gutting and all the rest of it, what sort of state were they? Be covered in hair and blood and there'd be maggots and oh gosh, I used to just about turn my stomach till I got used to it and then I'd have to take all the clothes to the river. The river was cold, you know, because it was coming from the snow, so you could only do so much at a time because your fingers... And you couldn't go out to the shop and get a pair of rubber gloves. We were right out in the wobwobs. So you'd get a branch and stick a pair of pants through it and, you know, get the water to wash off as much as you could and try and scrub it with a wee scrubbing brush. This was an old bath which was outside that the cattle used to drink water out of and then they commandeered it as their bath, and I used to have to put lots of tins and things on the fire to heat it up and, you know, try and be so we look warm by the time they get home, but, yeah, so we have this bath ready for them, and they would all share this one bath. It was like you were in a dream world. It was surreal to my ear. This is so different from home. I worked in Singers, where they made Singers sewing machines back home, well, there's 26,000 people worked in the factory that I worked in. Um, and then you come out to this beautiful scenery, open spaces, people actually firing guns around, you know. I'd never seen a gun in my life. Anne sticks it out as long as she can, about two years, but eventually has to quit. She has a few reasons why. One of the reasons that I left, because the drink became quite an issue, and, um, you know, I was cooking meals, and they, they didn't come in. They went to Glenorchy to the pub and didn't come in till all hours of the night. Well, you had spent all day practically cooking a meal, you know, and then they'd come in and they'd be sick everywhere, and, you know, and I just thought, no. And I just think maybe that was... They couldn't admit it to themselves, but I think, yeah, they, it did affect them in a way. I think that's why they did all smoke, and I think that's why they all did drink. It had to be, because it was such a dangerous job. Dangerous is right. Then I made my way out into the riverbed, got a fire going, waiting, 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 hoping someone was going to come and start, you know, because we'd been overdue. So, you know, like every aircraft that went across, it was... I was hoping that they were going to see us, but um didn't actually work like that. I guess it's that anxiousness of the waiting game and just trying to keep sane. <laughs> well, I'd done a lot of walking between the fire, under the tree, talking to Johnny up there, who was getting cramps like you could imagine, being in one position and not being able to move. There was sort of nothing more that I could do. So um, it was basically up to me to flag down someone and get John out. Flying over high tussock tops is one thing, but it's safe as houses compared to the West Coast, where most of Jeff Carter's early shooting and flying is happening. 
coming to pick a deer up in, in trees and that, he's watching you because he cannot see his tail rotor. It's sticking out there, ready to grind up some wood, which is going to be a bad day for everyone concerned if he does hit one. And um, he's watching you, and whatever you do, uh, he will do it. And another thing to you, I had to make specific hand signals, and uh, you were his eyes on the ground, and heaven help if you direct him. So you have to, it was an incredible, uh, uh, you have to have amazing trust in each other, didn't you? Oh, absolutely. I used to trust the pilots with my life. I can remember with Jim Kane in real steep, horrible country in bush, in a wee tight hole in steep bush, and I can't get off the helicopter. I simply can't get off. I have got to uh, get on the tail of the skid like a monkey and go swing on it, and I've got to watch him. And he just used to flick, and he used to flick way forward off the skid. Do you try doing that with a new pilot? And the same with getting on. Sometimes I could just get the toe of the skid and I'm looking at it. We're looking at each other and he's nodding his head and I'm just waiting to pull the helicopter over and I'll just swing onto the skid. I got away because I'm, I'm skinny. It's stupid. The margins for something going wrong are really slim, aren't they? Yeah, in those days, we had there was just no margin at all. You just got it right or you didn't. And getting it wrong can mean a very bad day. Jeez, I remember one day, and I was hanging out the door, shooting. I heard the engine chain pitch, and I looked at the dash, and I could see the engine out light on. Well, sometimes I'll do that occasionally, and then they come around too quickly. And I thought, this is not good. And then I saw the engine rev dropping right off. I knew what to do. I pulled everything back in. I pulled myself back in. And, and we just went and off into the ground. And Jeff, what's the aftermath like when you hit the ground? What happens after that? Oh, the pilot, he says, what the fuck happened there? And I said, well, I don't fucking know. Because you're in the cosy warmth of a helicopter secure and loving your job. Next thing you're in a pile of shit on the ground. It's not very funny. They're like a stunned mallet. But I remember the overriding features, get out. But then you can't panic either because there's blades whizzing around here. You've got to remember if your head and the blade come together, the blade will win every time. And we get out of the helicopter and we look, well, what are we going to do now? This is early in the morning and we're not going to be missed till tonight. Well, we just thank your lucky stars and, and all you're worrying about is how you're going to get picked up because you're worried about other people worrying about you. In those days, I never really let anyone know where we were going. And we walked all half a day to get to a hut and I slept under a newspaper that night. Next morning, we got up and one was like, man, just like that. And uh, I had a cigarette lighter, flicked the cigarette lighter and we, we were picked up within minutes. I could see the cigarette lighter. And that was one of the things that come out later on, that we should always carry a cigarette lighter or some form of light. Jeff is married at this point, and no doubt his wife spends a worried night, wondering if he's dead or alive. Something that's very common to the wives and girlfriends. Anne, who's now left her job as camp cook, ends up marrying shooter Evan Waby. She stays at home to raise three kids, while he keeps flying. Do you used to get anxious at the job he was doing? Oh yes, yes. I think we all did. It was very primitive when they started. And they took lots of risks. It was a very worrying time. When they went away in the morning, you never knew whether you would see them again. It wasn't as dramatic as that, but that was always at the back of your mind. Because when I first came to Wanaka and I worked in the Wanaka Hotel, the cook that was at the Wanaka Hotel before I came there, he had gone out shooting and he was pulling deer backwards and he walked into the blade, and he was deheaded. So it was the buzz of the town when I arrived here. So I was always very, very weary of choppers. And that was always 
on your mind when they went out shooting because they weren't always watching the chopper. They were pulling deer in and doing all sorts of things and sitting on skid. You know, you always had this sigh of relief when you actually seen that chopper coming into Laggett and you seen whoever it was coming off the chopper that they'd come home. When we were first married, we were in a wee cottage at the Cadrona Valley. I heard on the radio that one of the choppers had gone down and Evan had been picked up. The chopper had come up the valley and picked him up that morning and they were heading to Queenstown to shoot. And the chopper that had come down was in Queenstown, it hit wires. And right away I thought it was Evan. I thought, this is it and phoned up one of the other wives, whose husband was in the chopper as well, and asked her if she'd heard anything on the radio, and she said yes, and she thought it was the boys. So we were actually got in the car to go over to Queenstown, and we didn't know that they had actually swapped choppers, but we were well way over the road, you know, thinking it was Evan and Mike when before we found out that it was Tim that had actually been involved. And, and and when you said you'd go over to Queenstown, well, had you heard there'd been survivors or you thought you might be going over to Queenstown? No, the we, didn't, we hadn't heard anything. We just heard that it was quite serious, that it had hit wires. That was the first time I'd ever heard on the news that one of the choppers had gone down. We knew it had to be something quite bad because there'd been other choppers, accidents, and nothing had been said about it. Did you then talk together about it, or did you try and put mm. pressure on them? Mm. No, I didn't. I knew that even Mr. Type that he had to make the decision himself, but did say to him that, you know, there was a lot of pressure put on me and the children, but if that's what he wanted to do, then we had to learn to live with that. But I would be happy if he didn't do it. <laughs> but the choice had to be his. You know, they were away for three weeks. They came home for a weekend. By the time they refueled, got new ammo, washed the gear, got everything ready, they were away Sunday night and Monday for another three weeks. So they were very seldom at home. So really we brought the children up on our own. Sounds strange, but I think the thing that really hit Evan, Stuart came in one day, her oldest boy, turned round to me and said, who's that strange man? Who's that strange man that's just come in? And he wouldn't go to Evan, he was clinging on to me. And that really hit Evan that, you know, his own child didn't really know him. And I think that was when he got honest about it. And he admitted to me that he was worried a lot of the times that he was out there flying. And it wasn't until he realised how many cigarettes he was smoking that he realised that at the back of his mind he did know that there was... and thought, no, well, he's got three children, that he's got his support here. Do you think the men appreciated that the women and their families, you know, it was anxious times with them? I don't think they realised. They were so involved in their own thing. They were there, they knew every minute of the day exactly what was happening. Um, you know, that things were under control. We weren't there. You know, we were only worrying and wondering, wonder what they've done today, wonder if they've just got hurt, or, you know, are they going to come home? Or... So you were detached, and I think they were so involved 
it was such an exciting time for them. And when they got a lot of deer, it was just such a highlight for them. And they got so excited about it that they just didn't think, I don't think, about the ones at home that didn't know really what was going on. And it was actually about 14 hours later before we got found. A helicopter came up valley. Of course, they see me and land. Everyone was sort of at me to get the information. I got it through to them. The helicopter was in the tree and Johnny Mac was up there still in it. All right. And the bulb was at the bottom of the tree. And not all right, that things sort of fell into place. They found us there, then flew out, picked up a chainsaw and decided they'd chainsaw the helicopter and they decided to chainsaw the seat and the helicopter started to buckle. So they had to stop that. Then they had to try and get a chain round the back of the tail to pull it because the chainsaw was jammed in the aluminium. They chainsawed across at my neck, it's only about three inches away. They went down both sides and at the bottom I couldn't lift up and I've still got the swan dry. Chainsaw pulled all the stitching out. That's how tight it was on my back. As you would expect, these types of accidents had a lasting effect on the men. Mark survived four other serious crashes. One of them involved hitting power lines. And from then, I've had these nightmares, though I suppose one would call It's always me flying the helicopter even though I don't know how to fly, you know, and, you know, always see wires, can't get away from them, crash, burn, right. Fifty years later, it seems to me that Mark is more entitled than most to have nightmares. We'll hear more from him later in the series. Remember Nola Jelly, who did not want to let Tim Wallace into her house, fearing he was bringing news of her husband Charlie's death? This was hardly an isolated incident, and it struck me that many of the women who waited at home were always on edge, as Nola confirmed. Well, I had always said that if anything happened, I didn't want to know until they had been found, you know, dead or alive. And my neighbour, Pat Johnson, she'd come up to sit with me on the Saturday morning, and I thought it was quite unusual that she was there, because I always listened to Gore Housewife's Choice. I went to turn the radio on. She said, no, you don't need it on. And I said, no, I love that programme. She said, oh, no. And I thought, well, she should be at home doing her housework. And it was just shortly after midday that Charles phoned me. He said that he'd been in a, an accident. He was fine. And just the look on Pat's face. And I knew then the reason why she'd sat there, so that I wouldn't hear it on the radio. Noel, did you ever try to dissuade Charlie from his job? No, not really. I mean, I was in love and what he was doing, he was happy doing. But I have to say, my parents would say to me, you know, really, he should be at home with you and the children. I mean, I would love to have had him at home all the time. That was his work, and get the wolf from the door. Started to resent the fact that he'd be home for a few days, and we'd have a lot of fun and laughs, and then he was gone. Was I going to see him again? Was it quite a lonely sort of life? Oh, yeah, terribly lonely. Yeah, and especially when we moved over here to Tamoka, I can recall some Sundays looking out at my neighbours and there was a family. There was a husband and a wife and they were out 
in their backyard playing with the children. I'd feel quite envious and I'd just draw my curtains so I couldn't see them. The long absences and the strains of the job took a huge toll on the whole family, not just the women. One morning, Grant, that was our son, saying to us, Mum, turn the radio on and we'll just see if our dad's dead. And I said, oh, Grant, that's not very nice. And he said, well, Wayne's gone to heaven. Our children knew Wayne Randall quite well and we had a long association with Wayne and Annette. And I think after Wayne had died, I really thought that Grant thought, well, this was what was going to happen to his father, that he was going to get killed. In our next episode, the dangers increase as poaching and profits overrule common sense. The whole load started spinning and I thought, bloody hell, I'm feeling really dizzy here and absolutely insecure. And I had to shut my eyes. I thought, geez, I'm going to fall off. Put me in the stretcher and they're hooking it onto the hook and I said to Jock Murdoch, geez, make sure that bloody thing's hooked in there properly. My way of coping was, became a believer in fate. When your time's up, your time's up. And that way you can cope, because there's nothing, absolutely nothing anyone can do about it. Crews are shooting themselves out of a living, and the end is in sight. That's next time on Deer Wars. Deer Wars is written and presented by me, Paul Roy. It's engineered by Alex Harmer. The executive producers are Katie Gossett, Justin Gregory and Tim Watkin. to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.